When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny of Deljabar. Danny, what's up, man? How are you? Chilling, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. I can't really complain. It is Sunday at 7.24 Eastern Standard Time. What time zone is Puerto Rico, by the way? I don't even know what they call it. It's Eastern it's Time called minus Atl- one? It's called... <laughs> no, it's plus one, actually. It's called plus Atlantic one, oh, Time yeah. Zone. Um, but Puerto Rico though. doesn't observe... Um, uh, daylight savings time. So for this half of the year, I'm an hour ahead of you. But the next half of the year, I'll be at the same time zone as you. So what is the status of Puerto Rico right now? Are you enjoying it? Do you like it? Do you miss? Yeah, actually, actually, yeah, it's, it's been fun. And, and just to provide a quick update to you guys, because I know you're all so interested in my expedition uh, or my crusade, crusade against uh, Ikea. Apparently, I think Ikea listens to the show because within about three hours of releasing the episode last time where I bitched for about five minutes about not getting a couch, somebody from the Ikea Puerto Rico like reached out and it was actually a person that could help finally. And by the next day I got a couch. I got my couch. All the random, I you know, it's on a truck, it's in a fucking boat, it's, you know, in Sweden, like all the random shit they were all saying was bullshit. And they were able to get me the couch. So... Thank you, or you know, I guess I don't know. <laughs> it seems like the supply chain bottlenecks have unbottled. Yeah, they've they've unbottled in the neck. They unbottled in the neck, so we're able to get you your couch. Well, I appreciate that. It's great to have a platform where it can actually make change in the world. You know, like freeing Britney and getting an IKEA couch. Like, you know, hit us up. Tell us what you want us to do for you. Apparently, it works on our show. <laughs> if we say it, it will happen. <laughs> or if we complain about Hopefully it, it not. will maybe happen. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So let's talk about uh, update on, I guess today we're going to talk about Russia, Ukraine. It's going to be more of an, a current events show. Next week, we're going to continue our Korean War series. Um, we're going to start with, you know, last week we did um, the creation of the Joseon dynasty and, and all of that and kind of like the foundations of Korean history that led to the war. Uh, next week we're going to do Japanese occupation and an actual lead up to um, to the Korean War and like World War II and all that stuff. Uh, but today we're going to talk about Russia and Ukraine mostly. I think we'll talk about some other stuff as well if we get to it. Yeah. And so you know we've talked about this a bunch. If you want like full background on the current crisis, we have a lot of episodes that that we we discussed it on. But right now in this current chapter of U.S. relations. Um, with Russia that's going on, the more I believe this just to be a giant piece of political theater. So there's a newsletter I subscribe to by a Russia watcher named uh, Gilbert 
Doctoro, and um, he's based out of Brussels. He's a pretty sober-minded guy, and what he's been saying is that you know the current hype about the war is really just meant to provide cover to discuss things um, which, without a crisis, would not be possible to talk about. So, mm-hmm. in other words, the talk the talk of war is allowing the Biden administration to consider Russia's demands for revising the security architecture in Europe. Okay. You may say this. You may say, well, you know, the U.S. already said no to Russian demands about not allowing Ukraine to join NATO, which they, in other words, you know, they did basically say no, or at least, the, you know, the Biden administration sent back their written uh, response to Russia. And we don't know exactly what it said, but, you know, we can kind of assume that that will be a non, like that will not be on the table to um, have a hard line saying that Ukraine will not join NATO like the Russians want them to. Well, they, they um, published in September, in last September on the White House that they support Ukraine's uh, a freedom to choose their own like political, geopolitical yeah. and foreign policies. So, you know, but, they're but, basically you know, saying no. <laughs> they're basically saying they're basically saying no, but we're, we're going to allow them to apply to join NATO. Right. But the reality is that they're not going to be eligible to join NATO. They oh, have no. too many border disputes. They don't meet meet the criteria. They don't really add anything to NATO. I mean, there's a lot of countries in NATO that don't really add anything. Like, what does Bulgaria add to NATO? You know, what does um, North Macedonia add to NATO? You know, there's a lot of countries that don't really add much to NATO in, in terms of a military alliance. Like, what does Estonia add to NATO other than just being a big like piece of chunk of land that's closer to the to the motherland of Russia. That, um, I mean, I'd argue all of those things for all of yeah. those other countries. That's gotta, the only they kind of make sense. Like some NATO countries might post Cold War make a little bit of sense. Like Poland makes sense to me in, yeah, in some way. It's you know mm-hmm. in Central Europe. Um, you know, Poland is a country that's like pretty easy just to walk into. It make that mm-hmm. makes sense to me. Um, but you know, other countries don't make too much sense. But what I was saying before, um, you know, the U.S. said that they're not going to allow – the U.S. has already said no to Russian demands. But the Russians know that they're not going to get something in writing. They just want an understanding that yet means yet. <laughs> and when I say yet means yet, and that's the title of a memo by William Burns, the current CIA director right now. When he was ambassador to Russia, this was back in 2010, I think it was 2000, or 2008, actually. And they were discussing um, Ukraine's uh, membership in NATO. And um, apparently, Sergei Lavrov said, yet means yet, yet. Or that was like the, the tone of the conversation. Like that was a very hard line. There was a red line that couldn't be crossed. If Ukraine were to join NATO, then Russia would launch some type of invasion or, you know, that was at least the impression that William Burns received to to release a, a cable called Nyet means Nyet. You know, there's an understanding that Ukraine joining NATO crosses a very clear red line for Russia. Mm-hmm. So um, last month, Putin made a speech to his generals about how these um, MK-41 missile launchers in Romania, um, another NATO country, that's a new NATO edition, um, were being deployed in Poland, you know, another newer NATO country, I guess, in, in the context of the Cold War, 
Um, but you know these these uh, missile launchers can be used as tomahawk strike missiles. Right. So not just strictly defensive. And also Romania had signaled a greater willingness to host more NATO troops. They're actually pretty pumped about it. They're like, yeah, well, bring more troops well, over. Let's do it. If you look, yeah, well, if you look at like the troop contributions for NATO, I think Romania is up there in like the top five contributors mm-hmm. to of troops. I think they have around 200,000 troops or so. It's like it's the U.S. and Turkey are by far the highest. Like the U.S. is number one, Turkey is number two, and then I think number Poland's three, four, there. and five. I don't know what the exact number is, but Romania is very high up there. Like they're higher than Britain, than Great Britain. Great Britain. Um, so you know, there, there's that. There's these MK41 missile launchers, and then in addition, this year there's a plan to start construction of these two naval bases in Ukraine, and uh. Um, Berdansk, Berdansk, I think it's pronounced Berdansk, Berdiansk. Um, or Berdiansk, and then uh, Oshikov. And um, Berdiansk is, is um, to the east of Crimea, so it's in the Sea of Azov. And then uh, Oshikov is only about 60 miles away from Crimea. It's, on the, it's, it's to the west of Crimea, but only, it's very close. It's like right on the southern coast of Ukraine. And, you know, this is a new red line for, for Putin. And, um, you know, these bases are formally going to be Ukrainian, but in reality, the equipment and the personnel will almost, almost entirely be American or British. So right. I think the Russians are trying to get enough leverage to remove all Western military infrastructure right now um, out of uh, eastern and, and, and uh, you know, southern Ukraine. And right now... They seem to have a lot of ways to pressure the U.S. to get what they want. You know, they have the ability. I mean, let's just start with the, the obvious one. You know, they have the ability to nuke anywhere in Europe with medium-range missiles. Right. You know, they can just park some—I mean, they can just um, park some medium-range missiles in Belarus and, you know, be able to strike anywhere in Europe, right? Um, yeah. There's, there's also— talk about the Russians building um, bases and ports in Venezuela to um, you know I don't know if they're going to put missiles but they're going to host um, like strategic bombers and and uh, you know ports will have like submarine capabilities um, and you know the gist is that you know these ports and these bases will give Russia the ability to strike the US swiftly if anything mm-hmm. goes down mm-hmm. and um, you know how bad would it be when, when I say leverage? I mean, how bad would it be for the Biden administration right now if there was a new version of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think we covered this on our last episode on Ukraine. It's 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 totally within Venezuela's right to choose who they do foreign policy with. And uh, I mentioned this earlier, but uh, here's here's that quote that I was talking about before um, from the White House website, and it's called uh, the Joint Statement on the U.S.-Ukraine Strategic Partnership. And this was from the past September, and it reads, As the United States and allies reaffirmed in the June 2021 NATO summit communique, the United States supports Ukraine's right to decide its own future uh, foreign policy course free from outside interference, including with respects to Ukraine's aspirations to join NATO. So, you know, you want to fucking spin that on its head. Russia can argue the same for Venezuela joining forces with Russia 
you know, it's, you know, you could just change the names, right? So it could be, you know, Russia affirms that uh, Venezuela's right to decide its own future foreign policy course free from outside interference, including with respect to Venezuela joining Russia, right? It would be a real fuck you to the U.S. for supporting Ukraine, and they could totally do it. It, you know, you just really start to imagine all the places that they can they can pop up. Like, imagine right. if if Venezuela joined um, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Um, mm-hmm. That's like the the Russian led version that includes like Armenia and Kazakhstan. You know, they recently right. just were deployed for the first time ever in Kazakhstan um, as mm-hmm. you know as a security force to secure a, a lot of the Russian um, like military infrastructure and their space station. And, you know, right. they're really smart when you think, like, looking back, we did an episode on Kazakhstan two weeks ago, and, um, you know, they were really smart about it when they went in there because they didn't even actually confront the protesters. The only thing they did was they went to the airport, they went to the, um, they went to the space station, they went to, right. like, Russian military areas, and they secured those areas. And what that did is that freed up the Kazakhstani security forces to go you know, deal with this, the, the protesting because the last thing you want is then to go inside and, and, you know, shoot a protester and that's all right. over the news. And then there's like, you know, things reach a whole new level of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, imagine if they joined that, you know, if Venezuela or something, a country in the Western hemisphere joined, um, you know, some type of an alliance with that. I don't think right. that's going to happen. I don't even really know what the criteria is to join that. If that's just exclusively for, for Eurasian countries, but you know, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, they can, I mean, you can just imagine there's a lot of different ways for them to escalate things. And there's a lot of different tools that they could use. And they can really just, you know, poke out nuclear submarines off the coast of the United States just mm-hmm. to say, hey, like, we're watching. You know, they, there was um, a report that they were, there was a submarine um, off the, in the Atlantic Ocean um, within like 100 miles of the eastern coastline. That's right. So, I mean, they're doing that. And I think Sputnik recorded that or some Russian press recorded it. So it would be Russian media. It was Russian media who I saw. So, you know, imagine if that was like, you know, that scare, like a Russian sub um, sighting just to say, hey, we're here and we can strike a city if, if uh, things really if go, if, mm-hmm. we, if we need to or if things escalate. Now, I'm not saying they're doing that. I'm just saying like that's just, you know, a geopolitical power play that they have the ability to play right now. And it's it's spooky it's definitely spooky like i certainly wouldn't be in favor of russian nuclear missiles in venezuela like i wouldn't be in favor of that at all as an american who lives in a major city i would hate that like i wouldn't i wouldn't like that um i imagine a lot of americans would be troubled by that as well Mm -hmm. so um you know sort of like north korea you know how north korea has all these tests and you know they have this nuclear program you know i think north korea has those programs to negotiate them away and i think the russians are kind of doing that as well as well you know there there there's different ways they can escalate and you know they can use these things to negotiate these things away whenever you know when they're dealing with washington so if they're um, you know, if they go to the negotiating table, you know, that can be something that they could bring to the table. Okay, well, we'll we will not um, create a put a base in the Western Hemisphere if if you make a guarantee or you know at least a verbal guarantee or whatever whatever demands that they want or remove these missiles from Ukraine. And Biden kind of said that already, like he was not going to um, that those missiles weren't going to be there in in, uh, in Romania. 
So mm-hmm. he, he said that kind of like passingly, like it wasn't like an official statement, but he had already said that. So it seems like, you know, there's a lot more, there's more cooperation than being let on by the media. You know, and you can only, you can probably guess a million reasons why, but it definitely seems like there's a little bit more cooperation. Um, but, you know, what, what's going on right now is like, these are psychological games, you know, to remove things that they don't like. And the problem is, is that in the U.S., if you negotiate with the Russians or if you give credence to their demands, the political system will attack you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the political system as in like the corporate press and, you know, the, the combination of like the think tankers, you know, not necessarily that that would be an unpopular uh, opinion or unpopular move across the average American but special interest groups, arms lobbies, think tankers, um, corporate press journalists, they're going to go after you if you negotiate with the Russians. Just look at Germany right now, mm-hmm. and, we'll, and we'll talk about that later. Um, but I don't think most Americans care about yeah. this. Unless, you know, people are, you probably, you told me that you're kind of uh, facing the same thing that I am right now. A lot of people are coming to you and asking you about Ukraine on a personal level, like your person, you know, your friends. In real life, they're like, hey, man, what's going on with Ukraine? Same things happened to me. You know, like a lot of people are like, what's going, what, what the hell is going on with Ukraine? Like, are we going to war with, over to Russia or something? Like, what? Yeah. And it, it's, um, it's interesting to see that. But otherwise, they wouldn't have, they most likely wouldn't really think about this. Right. And not only that, but like, it seems that Putin doesn't really care about sanctions that get levied against Russia. I mean, otherwise he would have thought twice about his actions in 2014. And I think the combination of it being politically dangerous in the West to negotiate with Russia and Russia not giving a shit about the consequences of doing something is in itself dangerous. You know, that, that that's a shitty combination, you know? Yeah. Well, um, there was a Washington Post poll back in 2014 that found that the less Americans know where Ukraine is located, the more likely they want the U.S. to intervene. <laughs> yeah, so I can believe that. the less you know about this, the current conflict, the more likely you'd be willing to go to war over it. Washington Post poll. So this was back in 2014. You know, I would imagine that it's, it pretty much reflects the attitudes now and that yeah i think it's also fascinating that the more the less you know about ukraine the more you are apt to want to intervene and i think it that you know that ignorance uh is just like i feel like it, uh, propaganda works best on the ignorant right uh and and i don't mean to say that like you know that people that don't know where ukraine is are ignorant like in a like, a, like as a derogatory term, I just mean that you're ignorant to the fact that Ukraine is located in Eastern Europe next to Russia, you know, like it's just a fact, you know. So the less you know about the situation, the more propaganda works on you and the more that you're able to see, you know, or take in the information that is being fed to you by, you know, certain media outlets. And we'll definitely talk about that more later. But, um, yeah, I, I just think that's a product of, of that. Yeah, I mean, how many people could point Iraq or Afghanistan on a map in 2003 or 2001 and 2003? I certainly couldn't. (laughs) Me neither. I certainly could not at all. 
I imagine most people don't. I, I mean, I, I imagine most Americans couldn't then, still can't now. And there's no shame in that. Like, I'm not even, I'm not trying to say that same thing. Like, you're not trying to say it in a derogatory way. I think in a lot of ways, you know, you don't really need to know. You don't need the to know map the of the is. world on like the back <laughs> yeah. of your hand. You know, I think you should know the right. map of your country probably more than the map of or a foreign city country or something like that. Or city, yeah. your city. Like, I don't really think there's a shame in that. No, um, but it's interesting to see that the more, the less you know, the more likely you you can kind of be tricked into supporting these these uh these uh warmongering attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so. I want to talk about this. Would the U.S. even win a war? You know, let's just say if worse comes to worse. So um, something pops off. There's, let's just say there's an Archduke Ferdinand type moment where mm-hmm. we sleepwalk into war with Russia okay. and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Or NATO sleepwalks into Russia you know, in, in Ukraine. Other than sanctions, I don't really know what leverage the U.S. really has over, over Russia right now. Mm. Russia has over 100,000 troops poised on three sides of Ukraine right now. And the deterrent that the U.S. has is um, like 8,500 U.S. troops now placed on high alert. Right. Like, is that really an effective deterrent? Think about the military mismatch right now in eastern Ukraine between NATO and Russian forces. First of all, Russia already has a military there. And... NATO, on the other hand, it would take them, what, six to nine months just to mobilize 30,000 troops? Right. And I think it, it, it shows you how serious the West is about a conflict with Russia. They aren't. Otherwise, yeah. you'd see a much bigger buildup of forces on the West side. You know, I think the goal here is just to arm Ukrainians and just fight by proxy, fight Russia by proxy, that is. You know, there's some pretty big deals being cut right now to arm Ukrainians and and. Stuff, stuff's moving on that front, too. So all you really need to do is follow the money to see where the priorities lie. You know, that that's all I have to say on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I think it's I think it is kind of an Occam's razor type thing where you just see. You kind of just follow the policy of what's going on and, and you, you disband the rhetoric that's coming out of the press and, and, and politicians and you just see like. All right, like the U.S., no one's really preparing for war. Like NATO forces aren't preparing for war. Like mm-hmm. Germany and Estonia and Latvia and all these countries are not really nervous that Russia is going to come marching in there like a bunch of uh, like Attila the Hun or whatever. Um, right. There, it's more about just like getting weapons deals and stuff like that and making mm-hmm. money right now. Um, and, and and I have more to say about that because there was. Um, an interview with a lot of the CEOs of like the major arms dealers like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, where they basically said that in plain English bluntly. Um, but I'll put, let me put a pin in that. Cause I, I actually have notes on that. Um, now there's still a lot of Russian analysts though, that, or, you know, people who I follow and read all the time who are saying that, you know, there is a chance that the Russians could invade. One of them is being uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who was um, Trump's guy? Who they he brought in to end the war in Afghanistan, and you know, and, you know, he it was kind of too late by the time he got him in there. But you can find this guy on Tucker Carlson all the time, and he's 
calling out the the Pentagon and the MIC all the time, and I think he's a really smart guy, and and, and I and I read him all the time. He seems to think that the Russians um, will, or at least he did a couple, of, maybe a week or two ago. I'm not sure if it, you know, if he if he still thinks they are. And then there's this other guy. Um, his name is Clint Irluk. Irluk. Um, he was on Tucker Carlson about a week ago or so and um you know he basically kind of laid out the current conflict in, in um very bluntly in plain english and you know he said that the everything was happening because of nato expansion and you know he kind of looked at he kind of presented russia's point of view and this guy was called uh, like a russian asset and a, a russian intelligence and you know this guy was slandered really bad um but you know i listened to an interview with him on scott horton and, and he was basically making the case that russia right now um you know if you know the the reasons why they would or could invade is because the window for them to make a military like a move like this is actually going to shrink because ukraine even though they have a a weak military right now eventually they're going to have the bases eventually they're going to have the military the missile technology eventually that window is going to narrow for the russians to um you know, make a move in 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 uh, Donbass or uh, any of the of the territories in Ukraine that are um, currently you know autonomous. Um, so I don't know. What do you think of that? Because you're kind of more on that side, or at least you. I don't know if you're on that side. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you definitely have um, um, kind of the arguments of why they would. Yeah. So like you, you mentioned this before and, and we've talked about this like I, I feel like i've had to explain whether or not russia will invade ukraine like 10 times this week to friends and family because everyone knows i have an opinion <laughs> um but i saw this really good youtube video that included uh a shit ton of links to the source materials that that were in the video so i had a blast just kind of reading through all of them and i wanted to uh basically summarize some of the arguments that they put out in the video the channel is called uh, tldr news eu uh, the video is uh, Putin will never make Ukraine uh, will never invade Ukraine. Three reasons for and against. Um, maybe we'll link to it. Uh, but in summary, uh, here are some reasons why Putin won't invade. Uh, so the first one that I thought was pretty compelling was that um, he, they would have already done it by now, uh, and, and kind of the, the opposite of what you were saying that you know these analysts are saying, which is you know, the longer he waits, the harder it becomes to invade. You know, the argument can be made that it's already been too long, right? As time goes on, the West is becoming more and more likely to support Ukraine. And since December alone, a lot of countries have toughened their stance against Russia. You know, there have been more sanction ideas against Russia that have been devised. Uh, One example is the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline project, uh, which is a planned pipeline for gas between Russia and Germany. And initially, the uh, German chancellor, the new German chancellor, Schultz, he didn't want to put the pipeline on the chopping block uh, for new sanctions against Russia uh, because it's you know bad economically. But as things have been developing, he's now signaling a willingness to, to use this as a bargaining chip against Russia. Uh, and that's a huge shift. Um, and, and Western countries are either ramping up or coming around to supporting Ukraine with defensive military equipment. So we talked about, you know, uh, all the money that's flowing in there. You know, the U.S., the U.K., and Denmark by themselves have sent Ukraine about $600 million in arms in the last year. And uh, in September, the U.S. put together a package of 
uh, about $60 million in weapons, including a shit ton of Javelin anti-tank missiles, which, you know, is like the best tool for combating a Russian ground invasion because Russia's tank fleet is the largest in the world. So makes sense. Give them anti-tank missiles, you know? Um, and even Germany started helping. They sent, you know, a few thousand helmets. And Germany was originally pushing for a diplomatic solution. So, you know, the argument that they won't invade is that it's already too late. They, you know, it's... And let's put a pen in that because I yeah. want to talk about that, um, the, germ, the Germans. The German um, thing, yeah. Because that also shows a commitment for them not sending lethal aid. Yeah, because yeah that's, that's also... A, then, exactly, exactly. And, you know, the mayor, the mayor of Kiev came out and he's like oh next time send us pillows <laughs> Mike like, oh, next time send us pillows a million dollars <laughs> worth of pillows over <laughs> yeah let's send us like three million dollar pillows <laughs> let's yeah. send them pillows from um from uh mike lindell <laughs> yeah that's what we should do um all right so the second argument that they won't invade uh, says that Putin hasn't been prepping the Russian people for war. So, you know, war is just unpopular generally for people unless they've been conditioned to want it. So in a country like Russia, uh, who's struggling economically, the last thing you need is an international conflict that you start. People would go nuts. It wouldn't be, it's just not a good look, you know? Um, but if you want to go to war with a country, you typically see the media ratcheting up tension with nonstop coverage. So kind of like how you're seeing right now with Western media doing exactly that. Uh, but in Russia, believe it or not, they're not quite as loud about this conflict as we've been. So there was this tweet uh, in the video. It was from a BBC journalist in Moscow uh, who pointed out that just this past Tuesday, January 25th, the primetime news on all the different networks, like all the major networks in Russia, was very different from ours in the West. So I'll read you the tweet. It's from this guy, Francis Scar. Um, and uh, on January 26th, he tweeted, uh, make of this what you will, while tensions over Ukraine dominate Western media, on Russia's primetime TV news last night, they were right down the running order. On both Channel 1 and NTV, the story was fourth, and on Rossiya 1, Ukraine wasn't even mentioned until 47 minutes in. I have no way to end it. So, like, this is crazy. You know, uh, like personally, I don't have a way to independently verify this because I don't speak Russian, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, if this is true and, you know, their media isn't as loud about this conflict as we are, it's kind of hard to believe that Putin is preparing for an invasion. You know, the news before the Crimean annexation, as an example, or the 2014 invasion of Donbass, it was all over their news networks, nonstop talking about you know, protecting Russian people, you know, and like going against fascists and shit. That that's what it was about. And they're not even really talking about it. So, you know, if, if you're yeah. not, if you're not making the media rounds to ratchet up the support for a possible second invasion of Ukraine, that's, that's the same thing as a surprise war. And nobody likes that kind of surprise. And Putin isn't dumb. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, what's interesting is that I wonder if... um, I wonder if the... Uh, revolution or riots in Kazakhstan had more coverage compared to what's going on with Ukraine right now. Yeah, I'm certainly. I wonder in the context of Russian media, because I mean, when I was you know looking into it, Russian media was covering like that, covering Kazakhstan like crazy. You know, right. that was all over. That was front page news in Russia because it was and, an immediate um, risk. It was an immediate issue. You know, well, that's because there's yeah, it's an immediate issue, and then there's actual Russian military assets there that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a violent riot or revolution or whatever. There's a very violent movement that um, developed in this country. And, you know, you have strategic interest in there. And, um, you know, I can see why Russian media was all over it. Um, right. But, you know, in 2000, it, this goes to 2014, you know, obviously there was a lot more on the line. It was right when Russia annexed Crimea. And, you know, there actually is that interest there because you know they had a there i mean that would have been that's a real crisis right there you know Mm -hmm. you're the country you know where you have your one base that's in your one warm water uh port is at risk of um you know your lease is going to be prematurely ended because the new government in ukraine that you highly suspect and it's highly likely uh came in through an orchestrated coup is going to take that away from you, you know, that they're ending your, your lease that you had on on, um, uh, on um, a naval base there. And to add to that, that part of the country, Crimea, has been part of Russia for, you know, I mean, they were they were part of Russia until the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, until Khrushchev um, gave it to, you transferred it to Ukraine on, uh, what, Ukraine's, 50th birthday i forget what the occasion was but he transferred it in camaraderation of ukraine's um man it was it was it was dumb i think it might have been the 50th anniversary of like ukraine as a recognized um area um but all right i'm rambling a little bit too much what was the the other point (laughs) okay so the other point why they're not going to invade would be that 
unless Putin is like intending to completely take over all of Ukraine, which is extremely unlikely and would be very costly and protracted, invasion of just like the Donbass would push the rest of Ukraine farther from Russia and closer to the West and NATO. So he cites a few things. So since 2008, um, polls show that Ukrainians' favorability to Russia has declined by 50% with the steepest drops coming after 2014's, you know, uh, invasion and the annexation of Crimea. So what what that did was it actually made it harder for pro-Russian politicians to win elections ever since and results in, you know, a more pro, you know, Western Ukrainian government, right? So it, it just, they, as a result of those events are now listing more towards the West. And you know, if they invade again, they had better just annex the entire damn country because whatever would be left over from that invasion is going to be so anti-Russian that it would be a nightmare for Russia. And not to mention it would prompt even more Western support. So it would be kind of a lose-lose situation for Russia if they went in. Yeah, it seems like it would just be a humongous headache because, um, I mean, I don't think every single, not every single... uh person in Donbass is Russian speaking, right? There's got to be, nope. I mean, I know it's I'm pri- the majority, pri- but they're not everyone. And it's not, a, yeah, it's not mean, just the Donbass. It's like the rest of the West of, you know, the West of the Dnieper river, you know, like everybody over there, you know, well, I don't think, so I don't think this. anyone, I don't think any, anyone I've mentioned before, like McGregor or, or, um, mm-hmm. you know, Clint Erluk or any of the people I've been reading lately have, mm-hmm they don't think at all that Kiev is under any type of threat. They think right. that it's just the Eastern uh, autonomous regions that are kind right. of under dispute right now and only being held together from not killing each other from Minsk too. Like those are the right. areas that they're, you know, saying that Russia will invade, not actual like the Ukrainian speaking parts. Right. And, and if Russia's trying to make it so that the West stops influencing Ukraine because they don't like it on their border, then this is a way, a surefire way to get them to, to like fail at that mission because unless they take the whole damn country they're not like the rest of the country whatever they don't take or whatever they don't invade is going to be so pissed and the west is going to help them that's just plain it it would be counterintuitive for that you know for their goals now the video also puts a couple of reasons why putin would invade russia and the first one's interesting it's it's the opposite of the first one. So what you were talking about earlier that some of the folks that you've been following are are really pushing, which is the window of opportunity for Russia to invade is closing. So similar to that first reason why they wouldn't invade, you can argue the inverse, right? So that the invasion is imminent because Putin understands that if he doesn't invade soon, the West will just continue to increase their influence over Ukraine such that their influence, Russia's influence, that is, over Ukraine will be almost zero, which is exactly what Putin was worried about in the first place. So, you know, the idea here is they got to act now and they should act now because otherwise it's going to be too late. So that's an interesting argument. It can go both ways, in my opinion. Um, There's reasons for and against it, literally for this just one thing. The second one I think is pretty obvious that a lot of people latch on to, especially in the media, which is the continued troop buildup. You know, we're up to what, 125,000 soldiers on the border now, and that keeps growing. 
And, you know, there's been reports of, you know, Putin moving the Eastern military over to the border with Ukraine, which is thousands of miles away. Like, why would you do that? Why would you move troops thousands of miles across the country just just to not use them? You know, so there's that. And, and it's a fair argument. You know, the Occam's razor argument is like, well, if they're not going to invade, what the hell do they want all those troops on the border for? It's one big-ass military exercise, if you ask me, you know? Um, and then the last reason why they will, or why Putin would invade, is that despite the consequences, Putin still invaded Crimea. So, you know, everyone threatened Russia with sanctions if he fucked around in Ukraine back in 2014. And mostly, a lot of them followed through with those sanctions, but Putin still did it. He still annexed Crimea, and he still invaded Donbass. You know, and that tells us that he cares more about his geopolitical outcomes than he does the repercussions. So the, the geopolitical outcome for Crimea was, you know, get a warm water port, make sure that we have, you know, access to that sea. So, you know, the, the, the negative repercussion was we're going to get hit with a bunch of sanctions. And he weighed the options and he said, fuck it, we're doing it anyway. You know, well, you know, I don't I don't really think that's a good comparison because. Crimea is a life or death situation for the legitimacy of his government. Mm-hmm. So it's a way different circumstance. If they lost Crimea, I don't think Putin would be around right now. Like I think right. he would. Well, it would just same. be a disaster I, I, for for that government. It would be, it would totally illegitimize them as like a, as a legitimate like security force. Like it would, it would illegitimize them as like the rightful heirs of the monopoly of violence in Russia. Like mm-hmm. if they were able to give to to lose a historic part of Russia um, due to you know what they perceive as an incursion from the West, I think that would have been the end for them. Like I think that would yeah, definitely no, I, life I, or death. I agree with you fully. But what about the invasion of Donbass? That had nothing to do with that. Yeah, but sense. Donbass wasn't. It was more of like special forces going in there. It wasn't like an annexation. It was more like still supporting did it. supporting. They still did it. You know, well, all of the they, all the Western countries kept telling them like, "Hey, do not invade Ukraine. Do not fuck around in Ukraine. We're going to hit you with sanctions." Crimea, I understand your argument for, but they still invaded Donbass, even if it was a quick one, and even if it was limited, it, or as Biden would put it, a minor incursion. They still did it. They don't care. Their geopolitical aims take precedence over over. Um, over the repercussions. Anyway, I think that that video is really good and it, and it highlights a, a lot of arguments that I don't hear a lot in corporate media. And, you know, my take is, and I know I've, I've expressed this before in prior episodes, but I don't think that they will invade. Uh, and I still think I'm still there, but that doesn't mean that Russia isn't going to do anything. I think it's incredibly expensive to be moving all those troops around and hardware around for no good reason. So, To sum up my opinion, uh, Russia puts troops on the border to act as a tripwire, right? So NATO and others won't fuck around directly if they think it'll start World War III, right? So that's step one. Make sure the West doesn't doesn't get involved directly. And step two would be just use that hard power to negotiate some guarantees, you know, with NATO and with the West, right? They've already asked for it very clearly. They're already... They already did step two. They said, pull back to the 97 borders. Don't let Ukraine in. And Russia has been you know, supporting these separatist groups 
in that eastern Ukrainian region of Donbass. They've been doing it financially and, and militarily since the last invasion in 2014. And if he fails to get NATO to agree to the terms that they want, then Russia's just going to press that Ukrainian division. He's going to put his finger in that wound even harder, uh, far enough where either, I think, Russia ends up annexing Donbass through a referendum, just like how they did with Crimea, but not through an invasion. Or B, Russia helps the Eastern separatists declare independence from Ukraine to create like a new set of buffer states that he can exercise more influence over to fix that problem of Ukraine leaning West. I think the last possible option for me is a, you know, what Biden calls a minor incursion. You know, I don't think that's off the table for now, but, you know, I still think there are better options that don't involve a straight up war or conflict with Western nations. But in order to do a minor, in order to do a, a real invasion, he'd need at least twice as many troops to invade all of Ukraine, right? Uh, so the current levels of troops that he have, even though 125,000 is a lot of troops, it's not enough to take all of Ukraine. It just isn't, you know? So, you know, he he probably has these troops in there as a backup plan as well to do a quick run through of Eastern Ukraine. And, you know, I, I listened to a... a, a podcast about with a guest that was an analyst for Russia uh, and they were saying that they have a three-phased approach whereby you know they first start off just invading the immediate Donbass area um, and then they come in from the south from Ukraine and kind of bridge the gap and create an effective land bridge for Russia and then once they've done that then they can start negotiating again be like hey you know leave west leave uh, and if they keep, and if they don't, that doesn't work out, then they can start sending people in from, from Belarus, you know, cause crossing the Dnieper river is, is hard, um, would be very dangerous. So they'd probably come in from the North. Anyway, my point though, is, a, a quote, minor incursion as Biden would call it is not off the table, but there's just other options that are easier and better for Russia than actually committing their troops to, to fighting. On the ground. And I just want to add something. So Donetsk and Luhansk, they tried to, they already tried to do what Crimea did and vote their way into Russia. Mm-hmm. But Putin said no. They said right. no, we don't, that would be too much right now. So there was already a then. Yeah. I don't, I still don't think it would be not really useful for them now. I think it would just end up being a humongous headache. And, you know, they, they've already, I mean, as far as you can trust, like, the government, um, mm-hmm. you know, the Russian government is, just saying bl- bluntly like we have no intention of invading or or annexing any territory right now um we just want like our security demands met and that's what i think a lot of this built up is for is is for is just to like i've said before just to mm-hmm. i think we're kind of close to the same page you know that yeah. this build up is to is to negotiate these things away so they can, you know, they can change the, you know, the security architecture in in Europe right now. And right. Um, I don't know if they, what if they fail their that, expectations I, you know, I, are. I, I agree with you. I think if if they fail negotiations beforehand, you know, probably annexing it would be a headache for them. But it wouldn't necessarily be a headache for them to just destabilize Ukraine by promoting a like an independence movement as they have been already, you know. Because then if Luhansk and Donetsk are their own separate entities, they're definitely going to be very heavily aligned to Russia. So it creates a set of buffer states for them 
It's not yeah. quite as large as the buffer state of, of all of Ukraine, but it would be politically advantageous for Russia to have, you know, like a destabilized uh, Ukraine. Well, I think I think what they I think they what they rather have is that they rather have Luhansk and Donetsk part of Ukraine and just be autonomous and and hate the government in Kiev. Right. I think that's, that's another, like the most preferable thing. That's a yeah, that's a pretty big plan. Same same podcast I was listening to. It's like the federalization of of Ukraine. Basically what they want, what an ideal situation for them would be would be that every state or region in Ukraine becomes its own sovereign union and is just federalized under all of quote Ukraine. But what that does is it breaks up the central power of the Ukrainian government. And a lot of those Eastern territories and regions, you know, are gonna immediately be, you know, allowed to deal with Russia in whichever ways that they want. It's kind of like a divide and conquer, if you will, or divide and influence, you know? Yeah, I kind of, I think, I think that's where I kind of agree with that analysis the most that they, they rather, they rather have, they rather kind of just break in Ukraine into, in, internally rather than you know, officially change borders or anything like that and just have Ukraine be a mess than, than actually absorb it or right. even have them be in their own nation states. Um, because, you know, if they're there, I mean, if they're mainly Russian speaking, then, you know, the obvious kind of uh, conclusion you can make is that they're just going to be, become part of Russia. Like why mm-hmm. have another Russian nation state? Um, so th- that's what, that's what I think they want. But um, I, I want to talk about Zelensky a little bit because, sure, you know, there's, there's, um, this real interesting thing going on with with Zelensky and the U.S. really just not on the same page. It's very strange. So um, lately, well, let me. Have you seen this uh, New York Times article? Um, I actually just shared it with you right now, and I don't. Maybe you can read it because you're a better reader than I am. Um, <laughs> But I, I highlighted the parts that I wanted to bring up. And, and basically the story is that Zelensky is getting mad at the U.S. government because um, he's saying that the U.S. is causing panic in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Right I, I agree with him. But, yeah, ha- happy to read it. Um, just give me one second, though, because there's some background noise. All right. So the, the New York Times article is White House warnings over Russia strain UK, uh, Ukraine-U.S. partnership. So it reads, uh, Ukrainian officials sharply criticized the Biden administration Friday for its ominous warnings of an imminent Russian attack, saying they had needlessly spread alarm, even as new Pentagon assessments said Russia was now positioned to go beyond a limited incursion and invade all of Ukraine. The divergent viewpoints brought into the open, the diverging viewpoints brought into the open the stark disagreement between Ukraine and its key partners over how to assess the threat posed by Russia, which has massed about 130,000 troops on Ukraine's borders in what American officials are calling a grave threat to global peace and stability. The tensions which have simmered in the background for weeks have surfaced at a particularly delicate moment as President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia reviews the American response to his demands for addressing Russian security concerns in Eastern Europe. Quote, they keep supporting this theme, this topic, end quote. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine said of the repeated warnings by American officials. 
quote, and they make it as acute and burning as possible. In my opinion, this is a mistake, end quote. In his remarks, Mr. Zelensky echoed this sentiment, quote, if you look at the satellites, you will see increased if you look at the satellites, you will see the increase in troops, and you can't assess whether this is a threat of attack or just a simple rotation, end quote, he said. Our professional people are looking deep into it. Ukrainian officials have also been sharply critical of the decision by the United States, Britain, and others to withdraw non-essential staff from embassies in Kiev, calling it premature. Mr. Zelensky noted that Greece has not even removed diplomats from the consulate near the front lines in the east, where you can hear the cannons firing. Diplomats, he added, are the last who should be leaving the ship, and I don't think we have a Titanic here. Yeah, you know, it's really it's really funny that, I mean, that seems just like complete theater. Like, all right, mm-hmm. let's just make the diplomats run in fear. Like, you know, there's going to be a Mongol horde coming and chopping people's heads off. Right? Um, like, no one's going to attack the diplomats. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like that's what their job is to do to be a diplomat and stay just in to the talk to country people, you know, like, and spy on them right like come on like yeah. stay the worst that's going to happen to diplomats is that they get expelled that's it that's the worst that'll happen to them it's like the russians you know they're going to conquer kiev and then they're going to go and grab u.s diplomats and like hang them in the middle of the town square like that's not it is russians ridiculous. aren't salafists and, you know like they're not going to go do that. Take them. They're American diplomat. Um, that's like, yeah, it's just, and you can see what's happening in Ukraine. He's getting, the, the government there is like, fuck. Like, now there's a panic. And now we're like, you know, we're really not that concerned. And, you know, a lot of our tough talk had to do with taking advantage of different situations and getting more money and getting more arms and, and all mm-hmm. this. And now it's like, backfiring because the u.s is using us obviously and you know now we're in a really shitty situation there was a cnn report too that came out on i think wednesday or thursday of last week and it basically said that the sort there was a a source that um the ukrainian source for cnn came and said the call was bad between Zelensky and biden like they had Mm -hmm. a bad call like it was like a unproductive and you know, a lot of this sentiment was expressed on this call from this New York Times article. And um, CNN went back and they kind of like questioned their own source. It was kind of weird. Um, they're like, well, maybe the source is bad. But CNN's own source said that to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, it, it definitely seems. And Zelensky is coming out publicly and saying this. Um, so, you know, what's going on here? You know, you know, according to the U.S., and we're talking like the United States media, the State Department, Joe Biden, um, Blinken, Jen Psaki, like the official voices of our government are coming out and saying the invasion is imminent. And, um, you know, according to Ukraine, there's no reason to panic. So, in fact, according to Ukraine, nothing is happening, nothing is happening at all. It's just kind of status quo stuff that's going back to like just normal things that happened since 2014. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ukrainian officials, they seem a lot closer to what the Russians have been saying. And, you know, the Russians have been saying that, you know, the 100, the troops within 100 miles of their border are on routine drills. Well, you know, I, I think what, what's happening is that um, the rhetoric 
the panic is causing a flight in capital to in, in Ukraine. Um, there's reports on like insurance companies not covering like Ukrainian businesses and stuff because of the high risk. Like it's a high risk environment now, so it makes it just a way more unfriendly place to do any type of business, to put money in it, to provide insurance, provide any type of coverage. So they're getting screwed, and the currency dropped. Their um, the the Ukrainian um, whatever the hell it's called was it? it started with an H. <laughs> The I can't even pronounce it. The Ukrainian unit. I was in um, I was in, when I was in um Europe and I was in the Czech Republic, and uh, me and my buddies were just calling the uh, the currency because they don't they're not they don't have the euro there. They exchanged something else, and we were just calling it units. I'm like, hey, can we have a unit, please? <laughs> like just the money units. Um, but uh, yeah, their their um their currency crashed to a level where it was since like 2015 so um economically they're suffering right now and you know you have to you know remember that ukraine and russia but they're trading partners you know they were always trading partners and you know they've before 2014 and before this whole um issue with the eu and all this stuff um you know with the eu and uh and russia kind of you know, Ukraine being forced to choose between taking bailout money from Russia and Ukraine and, and the EU. Um, you know, before that, the relationship was not that bad. Like, of course, there was there's kind of like historical grievances between you know like the, the Holodomor and stuff like that and atrocities committed um, in the Soviet Union. And you know, there's there's um, also um, you know Russia. Didn't, I did I didn't. Um, they didn't um, recognize Ukraine until 1997, and you know there was tensions with like leftover nuclear weapons and stuff in Ukraine and stuff like that. And um, you know Russia and the United States were actually on the same page in the 90s about making sure that Ukraine didn't wasn't armed with any nuclear weapons. But you know after that kind of after that happened, I, their relationship was was relatively good. I mean, I'm sure I'm no expert. I'm sure they had their their issues, but. Um, you know, it really the relationship really didn't turn bad until the the two thousands. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what. It, what do you have to say about that? Just you know the, what's going on? Oh yeah, one more thing too. Before I forget, it's gonna lose my. I'm just gonna lose. Uh, I'm gonna lose my train of thought. Um, last week, the Ukrainians and the Russians actually met in Paris to talk about enforcing Minsk too. And Minsk two is the you know the agreement right now that this the, the ceasefire in um, in Donbass between Russian separatists and and uh, you know Ukrainian security forces and it's kind of been holding up for the past seven years or so like it's kind of, it's loosely been you know the the main the fighting is not as intense as it was back in back in 2014 so um, it, it just goes back to you know me really thinking that this is um, political theater because in order for the Ukrainians to talk to the Russians in Paris, they had to have had U.S. approval. They had to have like a green light from the United States to actually talk with them. Um, so I'm just thinking like this is just more evidence that this is just, you know, the, the Biden administration was like, OK, like, you know, we can kind of tail back down a little bit, but we don't want to do it publicly. So why don't we just have the Ukrainians back down? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think you said it best. I, I don't. I don't think that 
that any of what we're hearing about in the media is like out in the media is like true like sprinkling elements of truth you know everywhere but it, it seems that that you know Zelensky here is initially was trying to capitalize on on this troops build up to gain more support you know either to get into NATO or get more military support or you know more trading things like that and then you know the rest of the west took it and ran with it because as you pointed out earlier uh, in the show you know this this enables us to talk about things that we that were un that were like third wires right third 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 rails i should say so third wires third wires i was like what the hell is a third wire (laughs) oh you know the first the second wire the third wire it's the one that you don't clip because it blows up the bomb um no it's a third rail because things like restructuring the security agreements in in europe was just not something you talked about it's it was political suicide right the, the, the status quo was the status quo and it had to remain that way. And if you talked about any other options, then that's bad. You are bad. It's political suicide. You know, so yeah, it, it gave the U.S. the ability to now start talking about it again. It gave the, you know, the rest of EU the ability to, to have an open conversation about its relationship with Russia and, and obviously with Ukraine and, and border countries. It gave NATO the opportunity to talk about whether or not you know, adding more member states was, you know, in its, you know, it was good for it, you know, or where should we deploy troops and which countries actually wants to host new troops and who's going to contribute more. And these are all things that you wouldn't talk about in like a straight up peacetime uh, because they're just, it's not politically expedient to do so. And so, you know, we, we see Zelensky, basically he opened up Pandora's box on this one and he's like, yo, chill out. <laughs> Please relax. Is <laughs> causing more issues than than benefits to me. Yeah, this is becoming a huge headache. And you know, he was elected to be kind of a peace candidate. You know, like mm-hmm. he wasn't the actual handpicked person to take the job. Like he beat Poroshenko uh, in a landslide election, but you know, he was running on like you know not being Poroshenko, who was you know who was very anti-Russian. You know, so. It's, you know, he definitely adopted like the tough rhetoric, but it's just, it's interesting to hear him kind of tail it back. And, you know, it's like a, it's, um, he definitely bit off more than he could chew. And I think he's realizing that he's being used. Um, well, <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. Oh, I think he probably knew that already, but like now it's like really blatant. Now, the other thing that's really interesting is Germany right now. Mm-hmm. So, so did you hear about. Deutschland. You, you ever watched uh, the Great British Baking Show? Yeah, that show is my favorite fucking show in the world. I love it. I watch it like I just started watching it a couple of weeks ago. And the reason why I brought it up is because my favorite character is named Jurgen, and he's Jürgen. from Germany. He's from Germ. He's German baker. <laughs> I love this show so much. Um, but um, all right, back to Germany. So, did you hear about the German naval chief who was forced to resign? Oh, yeah. Schoenbach? So, uh, yeah, Schoenbach. So, um, I'm going to play the video. I don't know. Did you hear the conversation that he had with the Indian? Yeah, no, I, I heard um, it, but you can play okay. it if you want. I'm going to play it in the podcast. It's about two minutes long, but I think it's valuable to, to right, listen let's, to. let's play it. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. 
Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, what is my, my, my minister asked me, what do you think I, what Russia really wants? And I had it this, uh, just uh, on the other side of the street. Russia, is Russia really interested in having a small and tiny strip of Ukraine soil? Integrated in their, their country? No, this is nonsense. I think Putin is probably putting pressure on it because he can do it. And he knows that he splits, he splits the European Union. But what he really wants is respect. He wants, on, on eye level, he wants respect. And my God, giving someone respect is low cost, even no cost. So if I was asked, I'm asked, I was asked, um, it is easy to even give him the respect he, he really demands and probably also deserves. Russia is an old country. Russia is an important country. Even we, India, Germany, we need Russia. Because we need Russia against China. Uh, probably from your perspective, or from my, my perspective, I'm a, I'm a really radical Roman Catholic. Um, I'm only a God and I'm believing Christianity. And there we have a Christian country, even Putin is, is an atheist, but it doesn't matter. I think having this, this big country, this big country, even if it's not a democracy at our side, as a bilateral partner, giving them a chance with the EU and also the United States of America, Heaven on on high on, on high level, same high level. It is easy. It's an easy workout, and it keeps us probably uh, Russia away from from China because China needs the resources of Russia, and they're willing to give them because our sanctions sometimes are do going the wrong way. But this is foreign policy. This is made by politicians. Um, I of course we cannot agree uh, on what Russia is doing and in China and other worlds. That's has had to be addressed. And yes, it's had also addressed what has happened in Ukraine. Okay, the Crimea Peninsula is, is, is gone. They'll never come back. This is it. This is a fact. And we have to, to learn that political issues are factual questions and not emotions. So- All right, are you finished watching that? Yep. All right, so um, this guy must be an agent of Putin. <laughs> No, dude. <laughs> I mean, everything he just said was 100% obvious to anyone who's paying attention to the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he said politically incorrect things. So, you know, y- you can name a bunch of things that are politically incorrect that he said that are really just taboo. For, first and foremost, when he said that, um, you know, we Crimea is over with. Crimea is like gone. We have, 
Crimea is gone. There's no coming back, man. <laughs> There's no coming back, man. And then you also said that, you know, we need to respect Putin. Like, just give him right. the respect. He's earned it. Or, you know, he, he gained He probably respect. deserves it. He mm-hmm. probably deserves respect. Um, two, two things you could not say if you're a politician in the Western world right now is that mm-hmm. Putin deserves respect and um, that, you know, Crimea is, is uh, still is gone. Um, so, you know, why are we even pretending that Crimea will go back to Ukraine someday? Mm-hmm. Like, why are we even pretending? Like, it's not useful to live in fantasy worlds that Crimea is going to become Ukraine by just pure will. It's just not. And, you know, Thoughts when, when politicians say that, when Ukrainian politicians say that, um, they sound they sound trying not to use that word as much because I get, get admonished tried. for it. How about ridiculous? That's another ridiculous. R word. Ridiculous. Yeah. Different R word. Ridiculous. It's nuts. It's nutty to say that. Uh, we're going to take back Crimea. <laughs> Good luck. You and what army? The Nazi army? Yeah. <laughs> um, the Nazis? The you and the Nazis <laughs> are going to take it? Um, yeah. So it's just like a weird thing that you know, people need to stop pretending it will happen. And then, you know, you ever hear this guy, the NATO general, the NATO secretary general, uh, Jen Stoltenberg? Mm-hmm. This guy sounds straight up like a Roman consulate dictating terms to the Gauls. Like, he oh, just so. sounds like an imperial overlord, the way he talks about Russia. He's like, we'll never. He's so hawkish. He's such a, he's such a, like, a blowhard. You know, first of all, your name is Jen, and you're a guy. You have a girl's name. Jen's. <laughs> it's like guys named Ashley, like Ashley Schaefer. <laughs> My name's Jen. Jen A. My name's Jen. This thing is—he's Norwegian, so I don't know. Jen is how it's pronounced. No, I'm okay, maybe, but I just want to stick with this. He has a girl's name, and um. <laughs> You know, this guy also came out today, just before this podcast, we started recording this. He came out and he made like a public statement how, oh, NATO's not getting involved in an invasion in Ukraine. Like, no, 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 not our NATO. Like, what are you <laughs> talking about? Not this NATO that we that we set up. We're not going to get involved in this war. Like, we're not. This is not worth, like, there's a difference between a member of NATO and a you know, a friend of NATO, and Ukraine's mm-hmm. just a friend of NATO, and they're not really NATO, so, you know, we, you know, sanctions and stuff, yeah, sure. So it's, it's, it's so much blowhard, it's just so much um, just politicians trying to act tough right now. Like, that's mm-hmm. what this is. A bunch of, like, you know, people in the state just trying to act tough, but no one's really going to pop off. It's like guys running, yelling in a bar at each other like drunk people yelling in a bar um but what this guy said to go back to um to um sean bach it kind of does reflect german policy right now it's not like it's not like that's like out of the blue you know it's um you know what what he said kind of reflects the german foreign policy with with yeah. Russia right now. They're less yeah. hawkish than the other European countries and way less hawkish than America right now. Of course, but he got canceled because he said the open secret. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? 
Well, He's, you know, we, we were talking about Olaf Scholz earlier, and Olaf Scholz is a new chancellor. He comes from the Social Democratic Party um, mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, you know, the CDP that Merkel came from. Um, you know, they are longtime supporters of the Nord Stream Pipeline. Um, they're also... They, they've historically been less hawkish on Russia, even during the Cold War. Um, you know, they wanted to have a relationship with Russia in the 70s and the 80s. So, you know, they, that's where Olaf Scholz comes from, like that political thought. Like, you know, the, the, I guess the, the coalition in Germany right now, they had, a, they had to create that, that government with, um, with the Green Party as well. And the Green Party is really hawkish. So who knows? will change but you know the the Olaf Schultz of the socialist party is, is less hawkish and um, some other things that are really interesting we were talking about this before the the aid that Germany has given Ukraine has been non-lethal so helmets 4,000 helmets or 3,000 helmets whatever and right. um, they also blocked lethal aid coming from Estonia mm-hmm so um, oh, they also uh, have some propositions of setting up um, mobile field hospitals. Um, oh yeah, in Ukraine, which I, I actually personally think that's a good idea. You know, like if you're going to support Ukraine in you know in a way that's not going to give you blowback against Russia, like that's fine. You know, lethal so, medical aid. <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're gonna, <laughs> lethal medical aid. They're going to force like vaccinations on the Russians. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> you know, like. Um, anyway, but it's a good to, idea. Go, to go back to um, so the <laughs> German, German. If you type in German lethal aid in Google, I did this before we started the show, and um, it's like the corporate press is just crazy, man. Like we've been doing this for a while, so you can really just start to recognize patterns mm-hmm. when there's a narrative that's supposed to be shaped. So if you type in Germany German lethal aid, the first story, the headlines I saw were first was NPR Germany baffles some allies with its refusal to supply weapons to Ukraine <laughs> the spectator 5000 5000 helmets in Germany's dark history in Ukraine Reuters whose side are you on Russia war threat shakes Ukraine's faith and ties with Germany NBC why Germany might be the West's weak link in the Russia's Ukraine standoff. <laughs> New York Times. Germany draws mockery for promising 5,000 helmets to help Ukraine defend itself. You know, it's, you start to look at these patterns and like how media, like they just become unison in their messaging about things. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, man, like, this is this is a propaganda campaign. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is not. This is a propaganda campaign. Um, well, so it's also preposterous. Like, what's preposterous about this is that act like Ukrainians don't need helmets. You know, they're just going to go into war with just like anti tank missiles, and that's it. Like they don't need helmets. It's fine. Hey, man, I'm sure that these um, guys from right sector and stuff they don't all have helmets, right? We want to get our our friends in in uh, the Azov Battalion and right sector helmets, right? Well, listen. I'm I'm not saying that they should be supporting. Maybe we won't it, put swastikas I'm... on their helmets, but you no, know, we want to get them helmets. 
Yeah, I'm not making an argument for why they should help, but I am making the argument that 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 is help. That is helpful. Five thousand helmets, field hospitals, other logistical supplies, like that's helpful. And it makes it so that Germany's kind of like not on the wrong side of history here. So, you know, if if they start sending panzer tanks or fucking, you know, fighter jets or some shit like that to to Ukraine and that falls in the hands of a bunch of like neo-Nazis, like how's that going to look for Germany? German Um, government supports Nazis in Ukraine. Like, come on, think about that. You know? Yeah, Yeah, that's not a good look. Hey, we're trying to get away from this story. Um, You know, like... It, you spent a lot of time in Germany. Um, yeah. I have, um, you know, I when I was in Germany, man, these people are, I've just noticed that people there are really sensitive about the Holocaust in World yeah. War II. And for good reason. For, for good Yeah, reason. for good reasons. But, you know, I had, I've told the story before on this podcast where this German kid, um, you know, he was young, he was like a 22, 23 years old. He was apologizing me to me for World War One and World War Two. He's like, "We're so sorry for World War One and World War Two," and I was like, "We're just so sorry." And I was like, "Dude, your parents weren't born during World War Two, man. <laughs> like, yeah. you had nothing yeah. to do with it. Yeah, you had zero to do with World War Two or nothing, anything. Mm-hmm. Like, you have you don't have to apologize." Um, but it's it part of the culture, you know. Like, they they definitely have a latent guilt and they want to it's it's weird for us but it's it's also it's kind of endearing in the same way it 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 shows you that they're trying you know yeah they're trying well it'd be way more disturbing if they were like well you know there was you know only a couple of jews who died um (laughs) yeah that's way that's way worse yeah you know it was uh you know only like two hundred thousand or so if they were like doing that it'd be weird um Mm -hmm. but what they what they um I forget the point of oh yeah so another story when I was in Berlin I was in a walking tour and um you know it was a World War Two walking tour um and this guy was we were in a coffee shop like on our walking tour break and this guy this British guy just yelling at the top of his lung about Nazi Germany and how awful they were. And he's like, in this building, I'll show you this map. In this building is where they plotted the trains to take Jews to the Holocaust camps and death camps. The German citizens went along with this. The Germans went along with this. They were, they was, it was Hitler's shadow. Just screaming stuff like how the Ger- the Germans were compliant in the killing. And um, we're in this, um, all these German people young you know they're early you know 20s and 30s they're just like on their computer like doing work like just having to listen to this all day <laughs> like just listening to this all day i'm like oh man that's gotta be w- weird on the on the psychology of the nation um when your country was like the ultimate bad guy for a number of yeah. years for a decade yeah. like the final boss bad guy um but yeah it was it was just i, I can see how it's weird, but you know, on, on the other hand, with Russia and Germany getting along, that's a good thing in my book, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, when Russia and Germany went to war with each other, it was the worst thing that probably ever happened in the history of the world. Yeah, one of, mm-hmm. you know, one of the worst things ever to happen in the history of the world was when Germany invaded Russia and murdered about twenty million people. 
Um, you know, and then Russia and kind returned back and murdered millions of Germans. So, and then, you know, put the half the state under lockdown for, um, for decades and decades. And it was, it was the worst thing, one of the worst things in human history when Russia and Germany went to war. We want them to play nicely. Horrible, most horrible war crimes and just the ugliest thing ever, ever to happen. And, um, you know, it's better that they don't fight and they get along and they trade. It's a good thing. Yep. Um, so, do we have time to talk about Yemen at all? Um, I don't know. I was thinking maybe we can wrap up with the the talk about national interest. But I was thinking about skipping that part and going straight to Yemen because we're getting longer. Okay. Yeah, let's. I think we beat this, you know. Yeah, I think we get the issue. national interest thing. I don't. We don't need to. Our audience gets it. We don't need to beat yeah. them on the head with with. We don't have to be Captain Obvious. Um, all right, but I, I wanted to use some time to talk about Yemen because you know we pulled an NBC. I think we haven't talked about Yemen in like a year or MSNBC. We haven't talked about Yemen in like probably a very long time. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the last time we did an episode on Yemen. I think it was probably when we've talked about it, but we haven't done like a full episode. So, um, you know, part of this is my guilty conscience. <laughs> um, so when Biden first took office, he pledged to end U.S. involvement in Yemen. And, um, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with the war in Yemen, since 2015, the U.S. has actively aided the military intervention of Saudi Arabia and um, mainly the UAE against the rebel Houthi faction, who is supported by Iran at this point. I mean, you know, there was skepticism how much they were supported by Iran, but at this point they are supported by Iran. And, um, you know, the U.S. military refueled um, coalition warplanes and, and basically provided the, the Saudi and the UAE forces with intelligence information. And um, the problem is, is that, you know, Saudi Arabia is a, is a nasty monarchy. And, um, you know, their, their coalition um, bombs civilian targets um, and they orchestrate blockades to create famines. And, um, you know, we're talking about a war of attrition that's killed, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people. And... Um, People who were talking about the war in Yemen were hopeful that Biden was going to reverse some of the policies from the Obama years and the Trump years because Obama started the war. Donald Trump had the opportunity to end it, but he vetoed it. He vetoed um, the bill that would end support to Saudi Arabia. Um, and then, um, you know, the war went on. And then when Biden was elected, by partisan bill, by the way. Just want but, to yeah, that bipartisan out. with with Mike uh, Lee, with Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee and Bernie Sanders, and the new bill that's been introduced to end aid is by is bipartisan again. It's by Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders. Um, but there, so Biden said he was going to change things. You know, he said one of the first speeches he said on foreign policy um, was that they were going to stop supporting Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, really nothing has changed since Biden has been elected president. You know, he 
recently just pushed a $650 million arms package to Saudi Arabia. Uh, before that, in September, they signed a fifty million, a five hundred million dollar helicopter maintenance agreement. So it just seems like it's basically status quo stuff that are going that's going on. And um, you know the reason why Yemen has been more has been in the news, uh, you know, more lately is because the violence has picked up. You know, recently there was a, there was an airstrike on a detention facility. And uh, it was filled with migrants. It was a facility to hold migrants. So I'm not really even sure where most of these people were from, but they were just migrants. And uh, around 100 people were killed. And when they went through the fragments of the weapons in the, in the wreckage, it was from Raytheon, of course, obviously, because we armed them. So um, It's kind of like that scene know, in uh, yeah. in... One of those uh, Iron Man movies where uh, yeah, it was exactly was it Iron that Man. Scene. I think it, I think it was like Wanda, one of the Wanda I think I, I think shit like that, where like the, the bomb doesn't explode and she looks at it and it says like Stark Industries across the side, you know? Yeah, Which exactly. Like, well, the, in this case, it exploded. In this case, it exploded and killed a lot of people. And um, yeah. so, you know, what's interesting is that, um. There, the Raytheon CEO, there, a bun- there was a bunch of defense industry executives, and you know we we started off with with this. I said this, I mentioned this in the, in the beginning of the episode that um, they're basically there's a there's a, a article on the Quincy Institute that um, that pulls these interviews from Raytheon CEO, Lockheed Martin CEO, and um, another CEO. I forget who it might have been Boeing. And they were basically just talking about like, oh, this is a great sales market right now. <laughs> like times are like these Muslims hate each other, and nothing's better than when Muslims hate each other. Right. When two groups of Muslims hate each other, it works. And um, so you know, I'll, I'll just take the quote from Greg Hayes. He says, "We're seeing, I would say, opportunities for international sales. We just have to look to last week where we saw the drone attack in the UAE." which have attacked some of their other facilities. And, of course, the tensions in Eastern Europe, the tensions in the South China Sea, all of the, those things are putting pressure on some of the defense spending over there. So I fully expect we're going to see some benefit from it. That's Let's just play nuts. a little bit of Occam's, like, Occam's just, Razor. It's, it's... This is... I think most of this is just hoopla. A lot of this hoopla is just money. Follow the money. Um, people are people are uh, making money off these wars, so they're going to happen. It's just or ugly at least to hear out loud. It's so ugly to hear out loud. They'll, they'll tell you, "Hey, this is great opportunity for us." It was like when Trump w- was uh, was president. A lot of people didn't like him because I think he kind of he was so blunt about a lot of the ugly things. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was when he was talking about the war in Yemen. He basically made the case. He was like. What do you mean we're not going to sell them arms? We're making the biggest arms deal in history. Muslim, right. Muslims, you know, there's a it's like there's two types of Muslims. There's a Sunni Muslim and there's a Shia Muslim, and apparently they're at war. We need to make some money off this. Like, kind of, I mean, obviously, I'm highly paraphrasing what he said, but it was basically that kind of uh, theme. Yeah. Um, but you know, he just kind of put a face of on it, and I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why uh, the corporate press and hated him so much. He yeah. was just kind of like an ugly face to an ugly system. Um, you know, you want like a nice face to that. But um, 
yeah, I just wanted to talk about that before we, we ended the episode. I think it kind of wraps it up a little bit. I mean, it's it's obviously going to cause some issues, you know. But yeah, first I mean, of all, I, th- I, th- I think this is like something that we were, you're right, I kind of do feel bad now. I went and looked it up and we haven't talked about Yemen officially in any, you know, Yemen specific episode for like I think since before the pandemic. So maybe we can blame that. <laughs> um it's uh, uh, supply chain issues <laughs> on Yemen. Um, no, dude, but like a lot of the reasons why we, we, you know, talked about Yemen is just because it's it's probably one of the ugliest conflicts, one of the one of the most devastating conflicts, and no one talks about it. And the fact that we are we by by we I obviously mean the United States military uh, and our government is supporting what feels like the wrong side or why are we involved in the first place you know and the fact that that we're just not cutting it off like i was i think this is the first time when i heard you say something exceptionally negative about the trump, uh, trump administration was when he he vetoed that bill i agree i thought it was devastating i thought it was probably the worst thing trump ever did um because so many people are dying from this conflict both from the actual war and the famine that comes around with it it's just terrible. It's it's absolutely terrible. And what's what's happening is that. Sorry, hold on. What's what's happening is that it's creating new enemies for us, right? And and you pointed it out in the in the beginning of this segment. You know, initially, Iran was like kind of helping the Houthis a little bit in Yemen, and now it's like pretty much yeah, they're they're helping them out. And you know, one one article that that. We just got today uh, from one of our Patreon members is talking about a joint military exercise between Iran, uh, China, and Russia, and how you know the Iranian general or commander uh, was saying that you know this proves that you know the Western you know hegemony is is broken, and that you know when states you know that don't fit into the the fold, so to speak, the Western fold decide to work together that that they can accomplish great things and you know to relate this back to russia like it it seems like we're creating a a bipolar world between the west or nato and all and all of the other countries right i mean we see that with how we with yemen you know right now iran is definitely backing yemen and if iran is also doing military drills with both russia and china and russia and china are doing drills and russia's fucking around in ukraine and China's doing some shit, you know, and I don't know, maybe Venezuela joins, like we said earlier in the show, you know, like we can start seeing an access. I think there was an actual word that he used um, to, to describe the axis. If I can find it all, I'll say it. But you, you know what I'm saying? I think there's going to be some blowback here for our continued support in this shitty, terrible, disgusting conflict. Well, it's like, you know, now you have a combination of the Tang Dynasty the Persian Empire and the uh, and the uh, Tsar is Russia or the Soviet Union. Let's just say the most powerful military military forms of all of them. Um, mm-hmm. Now they're all combined into one right. mega empire. Um, right. I mean, I'm being super hyperbolic right there. That's not actually the case at all. But Mm-mm. you know, you can if you see if you see the world in black and white, you can kind of put put it like that, like the Orientals versus the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, now. Um, you know, the blowback that I'm also concerned about is just, I'll, 
the Arabian Peninsula is full of Al Qaeda people. Mm-hmm. Like, when does that just like come back to bite you in the ass? Like, come on, and like, there has to be. I mean, I pray that there's not, but there has to be fostering more extremism in there in that part of the world. Um, right. These continued terror wars, and I mean, now it's just support. Now it's just like going back and forth. Like, are we going to fight the terror war against Al Qaeda, or are we going to attack? We're going to fight the Houthis. Which one? Um, I guess it depends on what Saudi Arabia wants at that time period. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of a morbid way to end the episode but uh thought we should talk about it yeah we, we're paying uh, attention so all right should we end this thing yeah man all right thanks everyone for listening to another episode of bro history if you want to support the show rate and review the podcast you can rate us on apple you can also rate us on spotify now so do that uh, before we remove ourselves from spotify and <laughs> i'm joking we're not going to do that um <laughs> yeah um i was you know the joke i was making but um, so, yeah, support us on uh, those platforms by rating us. And then if you want to support us more, go to our Patreon page where you get access to our Slack account. And our Slack account is a real fun way to, to, uh, to uh, stay in contact with us and our community that we built. Uh, we have a great one where, you know, we're, we're continuing to discuss these stuff, this stuff uh, on a daily basis. So join us there. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with our follow-up episode to the Korean War. Peace. Peace.